Did I mention that I made chili? You made chili? No, you didn't mention that. Yeah, I made chili. Tell me more about yeah, this chili. Really, yeah, vegetarian chili, baby. It's oh, real good. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if it's good. I haven't eaten it. It's been simmering. Um, but it's like nice and like reduced now. So like it's, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like real good. Made it's super hungry. spicy. I put... <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I made cornbread and rice. Oh, dang. That with her like two a, cart. That's a hearty dinner. You and Chandler It's very well. carby. <laughs> very carby. I don't know if I'll necessarily have both mm. who am i kidding i will have both <laughs> welcome to turnabout podcast the only podcast that that will blackmail you but by the end of the episode yeah that's right uh hand over your lunch money nerd i i i admit to nothing <laughs> talk to my attorney <laughs> I'm your prosecutor host, Abby. I'm your defense host, Mish. Mish, today, today we are covering a, a fa- the famous season three, episode two of Columbo, Any Old Port in a Storm. Now, now, hold on. Hold on a minute. It's Peter Falk, I think, did an amazing job with this episode. Uh, it was this, considered his favorite episode of the series. This, this, this is not what I have in my notes. It, wait. Okay. No, what do you have in your notes? I thought we were going to discuss Ace Attorney. <laughs> What's that? Let me tell you what Ace Attorney is. Ace Attorney okay. is is a video game. It is a visual novel where you play uh, defense attorney Phoenix Wright as he defends his friends from various uh, murder trials. Oh, okay. I mean, that seems at least like kind of close to to Columbo. Um, it is. It is surprisingly close to Columbo. <laughs> After after watching uh, more episodes of Columbo, I'm noticing more and more uh, parallels. Well, let me tell you what I have in my notes. Uh, today we are discussing part two of the second case f- uh, from Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, which is Turnabout Sisters. Okay, okay, I'm this this isn't okay. This isn't what I was prepared for, but um, you know, I'll I'll work with it. I'll work with it. This sounds interesting. I think we can. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we can continue with uh, our second half of the coverage of uh, Turnabout Sisters. It's it's fine. If you, you we could talk about Columbo too. It's it's fine. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> no, no. So go ahead. Where was this wacky character Phoenix right up to at the end of the uh, previous half? Sure. So we had just finished uh, day one of the uh, murder trial uh, where Maya Fay was on trial for the murder of her older sister uh, Mia. We are now at the start of the next day, which is September seventh. This is uh, part two of our investigation, or I guess the second investigation phase, I should say. So our first stop is the detention center, where we visit uh, Miss April May, who our loyal listeners will remember from the previous episode. Um, She is now uh, in the detention center for her crime of wiretapping. You try and get some information out of her, uh, she is very uncooperative <laughs> yeah talk. she is not really uh she is not particularly forthright is she C- kind of understandable under the circumstances <laughs> yes uh honestly yeah fair so so there was one uh funny line that i wrote down during this uh, initial exchange <laughs> when when you start interrogating her about uh the wire tapping she says oh you make it sound so criminal and mysterious and you go uh wire tapping is a crime <laughs> No, okay, so how'd you learn that in law school? (laughs) (laughs) Legit, like I feel like this is a trend that like we have already seen and will see in the Ace Attorney series where people just commit blatant crimes 
and just don't seem to see the problem with it, including Phoenix himself, actually, if we're being honest. Well, yeah, I mean, we can talk about how loosey-goosey they are when it comes to, like, evidence law in these games. But I I have to say that um, even though April May seems to have no remorse, uh, this is a rare situation where someone is actually, you know, like a, a witness is actually, you know, facing consequences for their actions. It's like, yeah, she admitted to committing this crime and now she's in jail. Which seems to happen pretty rarely. Usually the judge is like, ah, it's fine. Just go ahead and amend your testimony. So actually, that's a really insightful point. I feel like we don't we don't like to get too ahead of whatever case we're currently on with this show. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I have played through this whole series. And I actually struggle to think of any other witness that ends up, you know, in the detention center for admitting to a crime. Which that does happen throughout the series, right? There are various crimes that are related to the case, but not directly what the trial is about. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think we ever end up with a case like this. And I kind of like the dynamic. Yeah, I can't think of another example off the top of my head, although I'm sure I will think of one, you know, immediately after we stop recording. (laughs) Yeah, sure. But yeah, so April is super not interested in telling telling the man who got her in jail. Mm -hmm more information yeah. to help his case yeah exactly so so we're we're making you know zero progress dealing with april may so uh pretty soon after this we leave um i can't remember you know during these investigation phases you have a little bit more freedom yeah. than in the courtroom you can choose you know the order you visit all these destinations i'm not sure if you had a choice at this point or not but the next place i have in my notes that i visited is uh back at the fay and co law offices okay i actually didn't stop back there at all really not at this point, yeah. All right, well, since I'm uh, leading this summary, you're going to have to deal yeah, with me talking it. about the, the Faye and Coat Law offices here. No, um, I mean, I didn't even play this case. I watched Columbo Season 3, Episode 2, Any Old Portland <laughs> yeah, exactly. Storm. So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm dangling just, by a thread here. But yeah, go ahead. Just one more thing. So <laughs> we, we get to the Faye and Coat Law offices. And, um, you know, this is the thing where, um, you know, there's a lot of items that you can investigate that are kind of optional where you get, you know, some flavor text, you know, not directly related to the case. This is where I investigated something. And I think um, you and I might have talked about this offline, but I think you you made some interesting points. So I'd love to hear what you have yes. to say about this. This this is the point where I investigated the old movie poster in uh, in Mia's office. Um, so, so one yeah. thing I noticed. Oh, sorry, please go ahead. Yeah, so you're right about that, is that uh, at this point in the case, it's actually not part of the critical path to investigate mm-hmm. the Faye and Co. law offices. But um, I do think getting the opportunity to um, you know, just examine the office is actually a super important part of getting insight into Mia's character. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, Mia, the character, is with us for such a short time, but I feel they actually did a very good job... Um, at least for me, making me feel like a genuine attachment to this character. Like I was genuinely disappointed when she was murdered. I was like, oh no, like we lost, you know, our mentor. But but when it, you- it really is incredible how attached at least I felt to her after one like 30 minute case. But you are right that even in addition to that, the game does sort of continue to flesh her out as a character, um, you know, beyond yeah. her her death. Yeah, well, especially because the first case um, is so short compared to all the other ones, but I still felt this genuine attachment to the character that they established in such a short time. But specifically, when you look at this movie poster, uh, 
I like wrote this down and like starred it in my notes. It, they said it was the first movie uh, to make Mia cry. And then Phoenix says that, you know, he'll have to go check it out later. And I was just like, you know, like the fact that they make her, you know, like an actual like person with like human emotions that will like cry at a movie. It's like, I don't know, for, it just made it that much more real for me that we like lost this character. <laughs> I don't know. The, ga- the game, I think, just did like a masterful job of like humanizing uh, Mia. It is such a personal thing to include in your place of business, you know? Yeah. But then you you brought up the good point, which I would love to hear you talk about, which is comparing this uh, Mia's office to uh, Marvin Grossberg's. Yeah, so it, it's such a, a personal thing for me to include in her law office. A, a movie poster of the first movie that made her cry, right? Mm-hmm. So movie posters, I would say in general, are maybe seen as a somewhat tacky piece of interior decor. decor. And I say that as someone who I'm in my home office right now with uh, several video game posters up on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Each of which are, you know, similarly important to me. Uh, But I wouldn't really consider it the most sophisticated decor. While you compare that to, say, the office of Marvin Grossberg, who has a giant, enormous oil painting on his wall that really just dominates the whole scene. Uh, one that, as we had remarked, you know, in the last episode, uh, mm-hmm. seems to be incredibly forgetful yeah. by anybody who views it, but is defined mm-hmm. by, if nothing else, its extreme cost, right? Which Marvin is very quick to emphasize. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely noticed like the movie poster in Mia's office and you took it a step further by comparing it. You know, it, it's kind of a sharp contrast to the, you know, opulent painting in Marvin Grossberg's office where it's, you know, super expensive, this like $3 million painting, but it has no sentimental value at all. It was, and they even made a point of this. I, I don't think this was a coincidence. I do think this was uh, deliberate, which is, you know, nobody can even seem to remember what the painting is of. It's just a very expensive painting <laughs> versus, you know, this movie poster, which they don't specifically say how much the poster costs, but I'm willing to bet, you know, much, much less, uh, than this, you know, painting in Grossberg's office by comparison, but, you know, has tremendous, like, sentimental value. Yeah, decor may seem like a fairly minor choice, but the way that Mm -hmm. we choose to set up and arrange our personal and professional spaces are a reflection of the things that we value, the things that we like to be around. And it seems like Mia likes to be around things that, you know, remind her of her humanity, right? That remind her of emotion, of, you know, just the real people-oriented things. Whereas Marvin, he wants to be uh, surrounded by things that display his wealth, right? Yeah, and and I think you had some examples, like, besides just the movie poster and the painting, right? Yes, so really pretty much everything at the Fay & Co. Law Office is a parallel to something in the uh, Grossberg Law Office, right? Uh, a good example, I believe you had mentioned last time, was the um, the potted plant. It was uh, Mia's favorite plant, right? That was some sort of, you know, quirky plant that, like, nobody could even really remember the name of, uh, except for seemingly gum- Gumshoe, mm-hmm. who was able to recall off his dome that it was a uh, Cordyline Stricta, right? I just remember it being named Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does take up the name Charlie later in the series, which I think is very sweet, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have this weird, quirky plant that, like, 
you know, I, I like to imagine that Mia maybe didn't even get from a like gardening store. Like maybe she got it from, you know, a friend or something. Right. Yeah. Whereas then you have Marvin's office where um, he kind of has a much smaller plant that's down to the floor. Right. Kind of almost out of sight. Yeah. But uh, Phoenix remarks that it is probably a very expensive plant. Right. Something exotic that's very pricey. Again, I, I feel like it's representative of both of their characters, right? Yeah. Marvin kind of wants the appearance of greenery, right? Mm. But without having to really pay it much attention. Whereas Charlie, the plant, is very tall, very prominent. You can't really ignore Charlie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's a much more, like, humble and quirky plant. Yeah. It, so I, that's such a great point. This is why I love talking to you about these games, because you uh, catch these details that I miss, which is... Um, you know, for every object you can examine in uh, Mia's office, there's an equivalent in Grossberg's office, and it just shows the contrast of the things that Mia values, you know, having, like, the soft, comfortable couch versus, you know, the super expensive couch in Grossberg's office. You know, you have all, like, the expensive but kind of tacky things like the solid gold uh, lighter and ashtray in Grossberg's office. I have not stopped thinking about the solid gold lighter. <laughs> It would melt, right? Like, I'm not stupid. Like, it would melt, wouldn't it? <laughs> probably, yeah. It's probably just for show. <laughs> a solid gold lighter couldn't be functional. Yeah. Like, and again, I feel like it It really does. It just draws such a strong parallel, yeah. right? Even you mentioned the couches, which seems so minor, but that shows how they view their clients, right? Mia picks a comfortable couch, a nice, comfortable couch, because she felt that, you know, it was important to put that effort where the clients are yeah. right whereas marvin picks the expensive ones because he just wants to flex on his clients yeah uh however among all of this i think maybe the most important parallel now you know what? i'm gonna backpedal on that i don't think it's the most important <laughs> well you should at least say what it is <laughs> a parallel okay so another uh you know one of the other really important parallels between their two offices i would say is the bookshelf mm -hmm. right um, oh, that is important. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, this shows how the two of them view their their professional lives, yeah. right? Um, Phoenix describes Mia's bookshelf as having a horrendous amount of legal books. Mm -hmm. And he, he postulates that Mia has probably read every single one of these. Yeah, multiple times, I think he said. Yeah, <laughs> whereas when you examine uh, Marvin's bookshelf, yeah. um, he remarks that it doesn't seem like Marvin has read any of them. Yeah, they're right. they're still in like pristine condition. So it's like these very yeah. expensive legal books, but also that they've never been opened. <laughs> right. And again, I think that's just such an important thing that, yeah. you know, Mia got into the legal world because she had a mission. Yeah. Right. And at this point, that mission is still fairly vague, yeah. but very clearly she did not get into the justice system for money. You know, yeah. she didn't get into it for clout. Yeah. You know, so, she got into it because she had something she wanted to achieve mm -hmm. at pretty much like all costs. Right. Yeah. And I feel like in in a way, her very humble office, every single item there uh, reemphasizes that fact. Yeah, it's totally true. You get the sense that um, Grossberg, you know, he's like a competent attorney, like he's not a complete buffoon, but, you know, as you, I like the way you said it, it's, you know, Mio is on a mission where it's like Grossberg is, you know, you kind of get the sense he's more in it for the money and he's very status conscious. 
Yeah, and I mean, I don't maybe necessarily want to put Grossberg entirely on blast, right? Well, we're about to find out some stuff about Grossberg. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, let's just say he's made some mistakes and leave it at that. You don't don't have to backpedal too much. By all means, put him on blast. He deserves it. (laughs) You, You know what? Fuck Grossberg. <laughs> this dude sucks. There you go. That's that's the energy I like to, to see you bring yeah. to this podcast. No, Grossberg, hashtag canceled. Hashtag Grossberg is over party. Yeah. We've had enough of this guy. Well, spoiler, he gets a little bit of a redemption in the third game. <laughs> I think he goes back. He, go, he goes from being, you know, a competent attorney to, wow, this guy kind of sucks, to, uh, he's kind of a competent attorney, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. So that's that's a fair take, I think. But yeah, so while this scene is, uh, I think, entirely not a part of the critical path, uh, I think it is really important for the characterization of yes. Mia. Agree. So that was a, a, a lengthy aside, but an important one. In any case, uh, at this point, uh, at least I left the Faye and Co. offices and um, went back to the Gatewater Hotel. Okay. So you went to the Gatewater Hotel. Yeah, is this where you went, or did you do things uh, a little differently? I went to the Grossberg Law Offices after the detention center. Yeah, I guess, um, see, <laughs> if you're trying to speed run the game, I think you did it a slightly more efficient way, because... Yeah, make no mistake, I am trying to speed run this game. Oh yeah, going for the world record here, uh, Phoenix <laughs> Yeah, <attorney>. exactly. <laughs> but, so you went to the Gatewater Hotel, where you got to meet the bellboy from yeah. the uh, previous investigation. Yeah, exactly. So he was, you know, one of the witnesses in day one of this trial. Uh, so we reunite with this bellboy. He's all excited because he's talking about how this case is, you know, going to do wonders for the hotel's reputation, how they're going to be able to charge a premium for this room. Uh, oh, he is so ready to get a reality TV show on oh, like he, the Discovery Channel or something. He is all aboard the hype train. He keeps talking about it. Um, yeah adding a subtitle to the uh, Gatewater Hotel, calling it the Gatewater Hotel, parentheses, Murder Manor. <laughs> yes. Um, but any, uh, you know, whatever. Phoenix Wright's not interested in any of that. He's uh, asking about the man, the mysterious man who we have not yet identified, uh, the one who checked in with April May. And the bellboy tells you that he could probably ID this man if you brought him a photo. So uh, at this point, I went to the Grossberg Lofts's uh, Grossberg himself was still gone at this point. Uh, but there is one thing that we notice uh, right off the bat that is very obvious uh, change from yesterday. Oh, it's impossible to miss. I, I will give you the honor of describing this. The painting's gone. <laughs> the painting is gone. The very the painting's just completely I... gone. There's like a cartoonish like outline where the painting used to be. Oh, like the shadow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I guess like you know, that area was completely unexposed to, like, you know, weathering yeah. effects or whatever. So, yeah. yeah, just very, very apparent, impossible to miss. The painting is just completely gone. Yeah, this this $3 million painting that Grossberg said he would never part with is... Never. Is vanished. Uh, so that's go- weird. Yeah, but Grossberg's out, so we can't, you know, <laughs> ask him about that. Yeah. Um, but there's one of the things... So we just kind of have to live with that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just live with it for now. Um, oh, there was one funny... Uh, kind of dialogue tree here when you examine the spot uh, where the painting used to be uh, phoenix Wright tries to remember what it was a painting of whether it was uh, a painting of sunflowers a painting of uh, marvin grossberg himself uh, or fisherman was the third option and 
as far as I can tell, none of those is the right answer. It was, it was, yes. a, it was a picture of this dude in like a big safari hat and like that out back and over the with the sunset. So just goes to show that it's a very um, expensive painting, but not a very memorable one. Yeah, we, we talked about this specific dialogue tree in the last episode. And I did we? Ah, oh, man, I jumped ahead then. You- yeah. Well, I do love this specific dialogue tree because every single option, word yeah. for word, gives the same response, which is, <laughs> which is Phoenix it? thinking, yeah. wasn't it? It wasn't a very memorable painting anyhow. No matter what you pick, that's yeah. that's his internal monologue. And I think that's hilarious. Oh, it's great. It totally works. <laughs> like, I feel like there are some but yes. I'd, where I'd be mad about being railroaded where like your choices don't matter. In this case, I think it works. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, the other big thing we notice um, in this office is uh, there are two photographs on the desk. Um, would you would you like to describe the subjects of these two photos? Yes. So both of the photos reference something called the DL six incident, right? Which I don't believe we have um, heard of up to this point, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. At this point, um, the first photo. Uh, I believe it's called photo A or exhibit A or whatever. It features the photo of a uh, older looking woman. Mm-hmm. And the second photo features the image of a very obsequious looking purple haired man yes. who us, mm-hmm. the the player, yeah. uh, will recall from the uh, opening scene of the case. Yes, that's right. Uh, he, he was the man with the uh, big vocabulary, the one uh, who... The actual murderer, the one who killed uh, Mia Fey. And I believe this is the first time that Phoenix gets a look at this man. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, and there's one thing that's a little bit silly in the scene, which is that you can only hold one of the photos at a time. You get, <laughs> you get a choice. Like, you can take one of the photos with you, and then if you're not happy with the one you took, you could, like, swap it out for the other one, which, all right, game. I guess I can see why they did that, to, like, give you a choice or whatever. Seems kind of silly and artificial. <laughs> That you can't just take. Yeah. They're tiny photographs. Like you'd put them in your wallet. So this scene does actually confuse me a little bit in that, like, why is this folder lying out on the desk anyway? Because that's what the plot needed to happen at the time. Right. Like, are we to think that, like, Marvin intentionally left this out, like, for Phoenix? Or is he just careless? Like, that kind of confuses me in general, right? And then, yeah, to your point, the f- so that actually is. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think you made a really good point there because this game, you know, I'm, I'm being a little silly joking about this, but in general, I think the Ace Attorney games are very good about like tying up all their loose ends. And, you know, they'll have things that are very unlikely, but few things that are actual like plot holes. This particular thing, I can't really explain. Like, yeah, that's a totally fair question. Why did he leave these photos out? Did he maybe he wanted you to find him? Yeah, the way I kind of interpreted it was that, like, Marvin knew that he couldn't directly work on this case, as he emphasized very clearly on the first day. Mm, But he does see that Phoenix maybe has the potential to crack this case for everybody. So he kind of just he kind of just absentmindedly left it out. You know, the kind of thing that he could have plausible deniability on. Yeah. You know, I think that is the most likely explanation. Like there's no there's no actual like diegetic, you know, in-game explanation of why these photos were here. I think what you just explained seems pretty plausible. Like we know, well, if we don't know it yet, we're about to 
learn soon, um, you know, why Grossberg couldn't take on this case, why he couldn't be the one to defend Maya. Um, so yeah, I think that sounds like a reasonable explanation. He left these yeah. photos out hoping you would discover it. I mean, sure. Why not? <laughs> and then as for only being able to carry one photo at a time, I guess Phoenix thinks in his internal monologue that stealing a little evidence as a treat is okay. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can steal one piece of evidence as a treat. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> two? That's too much. <laughs> too much. One? We're good. We yeah. can do one. <laughs> so so I'm not... So you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. I don't think there's any practical use for Exhibit A, the photo of the woman. So I ended up taking uh, Exhibit B, the photo of this uh, kind of uh, flamboyant man with the purple hair. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't believe either April May or the bellboy have any interest in Exhibit A. Yeah. All right, so at this point, um, I took you, you do a little bit of, you know, roundabout kind of fetch quest <laughs> exchanging of items here. So, so you get the photo of uh, this man, you go back to the hotel, you show it to the bellboy. I mean, I guess you could have gone to the det- detention center, but I think the most efficient route at this point is to, uh, you go to the hotel, you talk to the bellboy, yeah. you show him the photo, he identifies, he says, yep, that's the man who checked in with April May. Um, he gets very excited about this because he just, you know loves anything related to this murder case and you know just wants to be a part of the moment and he's all excited to sign this <laughs> affidavit well, <laughs> sorry Carter. i love that that's what mm-hmm. he gets specifically excited about right is mm-hmm. you show him the photo and he's like oh yeah i recognize that man that's the man who stayed with april uh, c- can i write an affidavit i want to write an affidavit and phoenix yeah. is like yeah yeah like knock yourself out i guess <laughs> like he he's <laughs> yeah. the one who insists on it he's like i've always wanted to write an affidavit you know yeah. so <laughs> basically like even without phoenix's insistence he writes an affidavit that affirms yeah. that yes that is the man that i the bellboy witnessed staying with april may I, this dialogue <laughs> i just, thought was funny because you could tell like phoenix yeah. right is like beginning to get irritated with this bellboy at the end he's just like fine just sign it already yeah exactly yeah I th- he even says something like just hurry up like whatever i don't yeah, care and write it all right so then so you get the affidavit from the bellboy saying that yes this is definitely the man who checked in with april may you go back to the dis- detention center um you you know show the photo to to april may you show her the affidavit you say ha i got you um, at this point, there's a dialogue option. You can either press her hard or kind of back off. I, I think the better option is to press hard. She, if you do that, she immediately gives you some information. She tells you that this is, you know, um, her employer, Red White, um, the CEO of Blue Corp. Of course, Red, White, and Blue. They couldn't resist uh, another pun there. Um, I don't know if you, you're, you're more well-versed than I am in, like, the different dialogue options. I know you checked, like, the wiki previously. Did, did you look into this, like, if there's an actual difference here with the options they present you with? Uh, so it's actually very interesting. In this case, um, you actually do need to push her hard. Uh, if you go easy on her, she kind of backs down and doesn't give the critical information. And that is the name of her boss, uh, you know, Red White of Blue Corp, right? Yeah. So that's the important thing if you push her hard is that she tells you who she's working for and then also where Blue Core is, right? Yeah. Uh, which kind of leads into maybe the most important scene of this case, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, now, there there is actually one thing that I did find kind of interesting about this scene in the detention center, right? What's that? And that's that in order to um, make progress with April May, you have to show her both the photograph that you got from the Grossberg Law Offices, as well as the affidavit that you got from the Gatewater Hotel, right? Yeah, that's right. And again, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but this is very reminiscent of a specific gameplay mechanic that will be codified in the next game for Mm -hmm. presenting evidence to people during investigation segments to get progress right i just find it interesting that at this point in the game it's not necessarily a codified mechanic but later on it will get actual rules and mechanics which is kind of interesting to see this early in the series yeah no i feel like uh you know this is the second case in this game although you brought up the point that it you know was almost uh, the first before they had that introductory one so i think you're right they still are kind of you know introducing some of these mechanics and you know figuring out um you know where the game's gonna go and I, I do think in later games um it's kind of like a cleaner experience like as you said they've kind of uh, codified a lot of these things yeah <clears throat> all right so we have now presented um the photo and the affidavit and um yeah i think the the better option is to press her hard and she'll give you this information presumably if you back off you can hopefully still find a way to get there you know like soft lock yourself i hope (laughs) that'll be an exercise left to the listeners i guess you actually have to go back and get another affidavit you're kidding (laughs) yeah all right well i bet the bellboys are very excited to write another one in any case you uh have now learned the uh the name of her employer uh red white oh yeah one thing um i wrote down that i thought was uh kind of an interesting line that she said is um, you get the sense that she's afraid. She says she's uh, too scared to to talk, to tell you anything else because she doesn't want to end up like her. And that's all they say, uh, presumably referring to the murder victim, Mia. So it's like, all right, you're like, on, you're really onto something at this point. It, it does sort of reemphasize the fears that we've seen from many people throughout this case, yeah. right? Yeah. That, you know, th- this person, right? you know, who we've yeah. just learned the name of, Red White, seems to be a particularly ruthless person, right? April yeah, is afraid exactly. of him. Grossberg is afraid of him. It, there's just this sort of, like, aura of fear that surrounds this yeah. man, right? Yeah. That we see with everyone we talk to. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty, so, um, so I don't know if you have the option to go directly to Blue Corp at this point. Um, you do. You do? Okay, so I, I yeah. actually did it. Maybe in a little bit of a different order. Because I went back to the Grossberg uh, law offices at this point. Um, you get the chance to uh, talk to Marvin Grossberg. He's back in the office now. Um, he says, uh, he has one of his like, um, almost like catchphrases. I know he says this thing several times. He said, the trial reminds me of my youth, the scent of fresh lemons. I'm just like, what are you talking about, Grossberg? <laughs> you know what? That's such an interesting line, too. Because that's, um, if you're familiar with, the soundtrack as I am, uh, the name of Grossberg's uh, musical theme is The Scent of Fresh Lemon. I think I knew that at one point. Uh, good catch, because I had forgotten about that. And I, I don't know what that is a reference to. I don't know. <laughs> but it seems to be a refrain with him, right? It seems to be a refrain, I guess, just this sort of general sense of like a, a youth that has passed him by, 
right? He is yeah. an old man at this point, right? Yeah. This sort of reminiscence that he has, um, it, it's sort of a refrain for him. You, you get yeah. sort of this sense of this like washed up, you know, lawyer. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, at this point, you show him the photo of Mr. White. Um, you learn some more information about him. Grossberg uh, tells you about Red White. He says that he has this information gathering agency uh, called Blue Corp. Um, it's like ostensibly kind of a legitimate like private investigation business, basically. But really, um, they're in the uh, business of blackmailing people. They have you know all this dirt on all these you know politicians, judges, lawyers. You know all the kind of powerful, influential people, and he's, you know, basically, like, blackmailing all of them, which is why uh, he's such an intimidating character, why uh, Grossberg earlier said, like, no lawyer worth his salt would take this case. It's because they're all afraid of this man, Red White. So you get more of a sense of just how intimidating he is. Yeah, Grossberg really spills the tea on basically yeah. a lot of the mystery that has been surrounding this case, why everyone's been so cagey. yeah. And this is something that the Ace Attorney games are very good at, where um, I just I love the way they just handle storytelling. Like you, you know, you could probably, as we're doing now, kind of summarize the events of this case um, in a very like straightforward way. But the way they do it is, it's just so good at building suspense and the way it's like you know, just like a slow trickle from like a faucet where you get you know like little hints of information you know right threads that will be revealed much later on they're very good at foreshadowing they're very good at building suspense they're very good at keeping the player wondering like i just love it yeah it really is uh pretty great writing in the way that it gives you just enough information to think about what is next and to think about how it connects to what you already know and this scene actually is a really great example of that right so as you had mentioned um in this scene, Grossberg talks about how Red White has basically been blackmailing and intimidating pretty much the whole like legal system up to this point. But he he also goes into how Grossberg himself has specifically been blackmailed by White for 15 years since yeah. the DL6 incident, right? Yeah, exactly. And that the two of them are very much connected to this DL6 incident. I believe this is this is the point at which um, Grossberg mentions that he is the one who tipped off Red White um, to the fact that the police had been using a spirit medium uh, yeah. and had done so unsuccessfully. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. So um, I might have done things a little bit out of order. I think I left to go to Blue Corp, but but you're right. You do learn all this from Grossberg, so we might as well. Oh talk crap. About it now. No, no, it's fine. This is this is part of the game that's like a little bit nonlinear. Yeah, I'm not sure what you're able to learn from Grossberg before Blue Corp and what you're able to yeah. learn from him after Blue Corp. Uh, it's fine. We might as well talk about it now. We'll get all the Grossberg stuff out of the way. So yeah, sure. So, sorry, listeners, if we do things uh, slightly out of order, but I think in this case it makes sense. It's fine. So you you learn. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. You learn his connection to the DL6 incident. That you learn that Red White has been blackmailing uh, Grossberg. And we, we get this is like a true like, you know, exposition dump like we learn so much in such a short time. So so I may depend on you to fill in any gaps sure. if, uh, if I miss anything. But we learn um, what the DL6 incident is. There, there's no special meaning to DL6. It's just like a code that the court system assigned to this case from 15 years ago where uh, there was this unsolved murder. I don't believe... Spoiler, we'll learn about it later because this game, again, 
is absolutely wonderful at foreshadowing, keeping you guessing. But at this point, we don't really know what the DL6 incident is. We learned that it was um, an unsolved murder from 15 years ago. We learned that uh, the police were stumped. They didn't know who the murderer was. So um, as a last resort, they consulted a spirit medium, uh, Misty Fay, um, which I think at this point we learn now is the mother of uh, Mia and Maya Fay of the Fay yes. clan. Okay, yeah, we had so, already known that the medium at the center of the DL6 incident was uh, Maya and Mia's mother, since Maya yes, gives us right. these same details, but a little bit vaguer yeah. on the previous day. Okay, yeah, and again, okay, I'm actually glad you corrected me on that, because that, I think, is another good example of the the kind of, like, you the slow trickle of, you know, getting these, like, plot details uh, bit by bit. But yeah, so, so we had previously learned that um, Mia and Maya's mother... Uh, was involved with this uh, case, the DL6 incident. We now know that her name is Misty Fay. She is the woman from the photo, which was Exhibit A, the one of the photos left on Grossberg's desk. So we learned that the uh, police had this unsolved murder case. We don't yet know uh, who was involved, who was killed. We'll find that out later. Please look forward to a future episode on that. <laughs> um, but, but we know that uh, the police consulted this spirit medium, Misty Fay, and that she identified the wrong killer, and it was a huge embarrassment to the Fay clan. Their name was ba- name and reputation was basically dragged through the mud. This uh, murder case, the DL6 incident, is unsolved to this day. Um, we know that, you know, Misty Fay was kind of, like, brought, like, shame to her family for identifying the wrong killer. We know that Grossberg... Um, This is where Grossberg's kind of an interesting character where he's not... Right, because here's the thing about all of this is that it was a big embarrassment to the police station for using a spirit medium. It was a great shame to Misty herself and is what basically caused her to self-exile. But all of that could have been avoided. It was almost kept under wraps. Except (laughs) one man, Marvin (laughs) Grossberg told yeah. white about the dl6 incident and mish why did he do it well because uh originally red white uh bribed him offered him in his words he offered me riches yep so um, it was for money it was for money it was uh yep. grossberg is um, he he sold out the police department and misty fay for uh, a fat 50 million dollar painting He's all about uh, that wealth and status. So that turned out to be a huge mistake because, um, you know, originally uh, Red White, you know, promised him all these riches, but then uh, turned around and blackmailed him and said, hey, Marvin Grossberg, you're the one who, you know, leaked this name. You're the one who caused this embarrassment to the police and to the Fay clan. And, um, you know, if you don't comply with my demands, uh, then, you know, I'm going to make it known that you were the one who leaked this information and it's going to go very badly for Grossberg. So he's been being uh, blackmailed for 15 years at this point, and that's why yep. this uh, $3 million painting is now missing. Uh, and I think that's all of the details yeah. I wrote down about. That's pretty much what we learned from this scene. So that was a huge reveal. We learned a lot right there. Yeah, it is It is a big reveal on the backstory of the DL6 incident, as well as you know specifically Grossberg's involvement in that incident. But... Um, yeah, as as you had mentioned, I think we did get a little, or at least I got a little ahead of ourselves here. Uh, a lot of this happens after our first critical meeting. Yeah, with Mister White himself. Yeah, so so let me backtrack a page in my notes here. So um, so when you first go to uh, Blue Corp, 
to meet the uh, CEO, Mr. Red White. <laughs> I, I wrote this line down specifically. The very first thing he said, well, first of all, we should talk about his office, which is just ridiculous. Yes. They, what, what was the first thing you noticed in his office? It's got to be the desk. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it was the desk. It's got to be the desk. So, so he has this desk, which is just, you know, like a flat top, like a normal, like that part is normal. But then instead of, you know, the four legs holding up the desk, it's like naked bodies, supposedly of red, white himself that are, you know, chiseled in his likeness that are supporting this desk. And you're just like, what? <laughs> it's, it's so over the top. <laughs> Um, let's see. He's also has the, the trophy case with all these, you know, ridiculous trophies and medals and stuff. I don't know. I'm trying to, th- I don't know if I wrote down anything else about his office specifically. Were, were there any other big things I was missing? So actually, again, if we were to sort of draw parallels here between, you know, Mia, Marvin, and then Red White himself, you yeah. know, again, we haven't even talked to this man specifically. But just yeah. looking at his office, we can see yeah. a lot of his characterization in the things that he chooses to surround himself with. Yeah. As you mentioned, he has the very obsequious table that, again, is supposedly made in his image, which is yeah. hilarious, right? Mm-hmm. There is the um, giant sort of, uh, you know, Atlas statue of, of a mm-hmm. man holding a giant globe that yeah. says... Um, it says something. I, I don't recall what it says on the globe. But uh, again, supposedly, I think that statue was also made in his image. Yeah. Um, there's the trophy case that, uh, and this is funny. It, the trophies are things along the lines of best participation, special <laughs> good try prize, yeah. judges special runner up. You know, like yeah. the kind of trophies you give as a platitude, y- you know participation trophies as as a boomer might say um and they're displayed incredibly proudly in his office right very prominent in big trophy cases with bright lights shining down on them like clearly he's very proud of these trophies um and then finally very interestingly in his office is uh a familiar looking painting Yes, exactly. All right, so so hold on. Just before we get into that, um, I, I think that was really uh, insightful of you to compare these three offices and how they kind of characterize uh, their owners. You know, you have Mia's office filled with, you know, the sentimental movie poster, the, you know, comfortable couch to make her clients, you know, feel welcome. So, so she, you know, is like practical and, you know, sentimental. You've got Grossberg, who is all, he cares all about, you know, the wealth and like, these um, conspicuous displays of like opulence and then you've got uh, red white who who seems to you've, you've got Mia who cares about you know like sentimental things you've got Grossberg who cares about wealth and then you've got red white who cares about red white Him. <laughs> you right. know, he has like yes. all these chiseled statues supposedly in his likeness but the funny thing is he he wants to like you know be this big important super smart like big shot but then you know you look at like the trophies and things like you know participation trophy and then you know he wants to be like the smartest but you listen to his like vocabulary and he uses these big words but half the time he uses them incorrectly and you're like who is this buffoon (laughs) right it's all very much sort of about the display right it's all very self-focused without any interest in actual substance right yeah which I think is emphasized pretty well with, as you said, the very first thing he says to you. 
Yes. Okay, so let's get into it. The very first thing he says to you, he says, please furnish me with the title of your personage. Which, that is honestly such a good line. Which I, I would I like to use it unironically towards new people. So, so, so it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think he act- – there are times where he uses words incorrectly, which is funny. I don't think he actually said anything incorrect there. It's just very pompous and, like, silly. It's like, what? <laughs> it, it's like these words are all technically correct, but, like – Which is this the best kind of correct. Right. But it's not really like, you know, words have certain use cases, right? They have certain yeah. contextual applications. And I feel like he, he kind of misses that even if the yeah. the exact, you know, definition of it is is suitable. So so he says that he is, you know, Phoenix Wright is obviously confused. Uh, Red White says he is inquirably asking <laughs> your personage. <laughs> and then um, he, he says that he appears to have intimidated you with my giantesque vocabulary and just oh my god, just words just go on. <laughs> he he says it must be intimidating for the wordily challenged like you. It it's seriously like one. It's like one punch in the gut after another talking to this guy. Uh, yeah. For me, it's when he mm-hmm. says, "I'm Red White, CEO of Blue Corp." You know corporate expansion official yeah it just using the acronym completely incorrectly he says that it, it miss may instead of his secretary he says that she's his secretary at just oh my <laughs> god i didn't catch that that's so funny yeah it's just that's so good and and i remember um on, on my like second playthrough um i've kind of mixed feelings about this character like red white i guess like they did you know make especially when you're talking to grossberg they Definitely establishes character as, you know, someone who's um, this very, like, intimidating blackmailer who has, you know, all these powerful people in his pocket. So I guess on the one hand, he is a very powerful man. I do remember on my first playthrough being disappointed. I'm just like, you know, they have this character, the chief, uh, Mia Fey, who, you know, we became very attached to in a very uh, short period of time. And it's like, man, she got taken out by this buffoon. So I actually that and this is something that I don't know how to resolve with this character because mm-hmm. I distinctly remember having that exact feeling when I yeah. played this game like a decade ago, yeah. right? Where yeah, he's built up in this way, and then you actually meet him, you actually talk to him, and you're like, "This is the guy that killed her." Yeah, this guy, like, really him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. and it's it's almost insulting, you know. Yeah. And from a writing standpoint, it is one of those things that I find challenging to resolve, right? Because it does make me think like, well, okay, how am I supposed to think of him, right? Is he intimidating or is he pitiful? You know, I I don't know. Yeah. You know, I I kind of feel conflicted about it. Like I said, my first playthrough, I felt exactly the same way. I said, geez, this guy's a total buffoon. Uh, And the second playthrough, I think I had maybe more of a nuanced or I don't know if nuance is the right term but a slightly different take where I was like you know what I think this is okay because uh, one thing the Ace Attorney Games I think does very well is um, this kind of balancing of you know these like heavy serious topics you know like the actual like murder of these characters that you know it occasionally you know shows like these pretty violent deaths like you know people getting their head bashed in with statues you know pools of blood like filling the cracks between the floorboards like 
you know, it's pretty gruesome stuff in some hands, but, but then, you know, it goes back and forth between that extreme and then, you know, the very lighthearted, you know, silly banter where characters like making puns yeah. and jokes and everything. And like, I think that actually works. I, I would be like, you know, they could have had like a darker, grittier tone, like throughout where, you know, they could have made red, white, you know, more of a serious character who didn't, you know, use all these ridiculous words and you know like this buffoonish character like i said like you know they could have made him this like super dark and gritty you know serial killer type but it would have been a very different game it wouldn't have felt like an ace attorney game so well here's the thing i i feel like one critical question to resolving red white's character right Mm -hmm. is that he he talks about how he founded blue core in part of this dialogue he talks about how you know, he basically founded this uh, uh, information gathering company in like 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. He says that he's, you know, basically built up this company, you know, that he named it Blue after himself, right? Um, because, you know, it, it, he likes the color so, blue. So I, I have to correct just one thing. He he named it Blue Corp because he likes the color blue. Right. <laughs> like, so I, I, don't think, I don't think blue is actually part of his name. Like he's red, white. Of Blue Corp. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he, he named it just because he liked the color blue. But I guess the central question to resolving his character is, do you think he is a self-made businessman? Do you think he made Blue Core out of grit, determination, and hard work? Or do you think he is like a trust fund kid, right? Do you think he got like a small loan of a million dollars and, <laughs> you know, used that to build up his company? You know, I don't think there's anything... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's anything in the game to indicate that he was, you know, like a trust fund baby or anything. Right. Like that. So, so the best we've got to go on is that he did build up this company on his own. But that's the same conclusion that I've come to, and I but think the, that's how we resolve Red White's character. I mean, I guess he is like a self-made man, but he is self-made through like I, blackmailing and various crimes so he's not I a good think, character he's not someone we should look up to like oh yeah i want to have that kind of determination it's like that went well i think he was able to make this company out of grit and determination because red white is a sociopath <laughs> yeah i think yeah. that is the literal way we're supposed to take his characterization right yeah. on a social level he has this facade of a intelligent and polite and charismatic man, right? Yeah. But well, he wants everyone co- to think he's, he's right. You know, this right? Yes. Yeah. But at his core, he is a murderer. He is yeah. a blackmailer. He, yeah. you know, wiretaps people. He mm-hmm. has no actual human empathy. And I think that's how we resolve all those de- all these details of Red White. No, I think you're spot on with it. He is literally a little unhinged. You could see it behind his fake smile, you know? Yeah. He doesn't yeah. care for other people insofar yeah. as they can further his own financial and political goals. No, you're totally right about that. Even so that's the way he can both outwardly be this buffoonish man, but yeah. on the inside be a bloodthirsty ruthless killer i am certain he has killed before and he would kill again yeah and and he actually had some good lines uh 
to kind of back up exactly what you just said, he said, like, you know, the, the courts and the justice system are, you know, just my own play things. Um, yes. There's a means to an end. You know, he even punches you in the goddamn face, like during this interaction. And he's like, what are you going to do? Sue me for assault? He's like, I'll yeah. win that case if you do. I wanted to talk about that scene in particular, right? Phoenix asks about, he, yeah, Phoenix asks about the painting and uh, Red punches him several <laughs> times with like this yeah. bright smile. It's like genuinely a kind of unsettling scene, you know? Yeah. I think I think the first time I played through this, I almost thought that was like kind of unnecessary. It's like, listen, we already know this guy's the villain. Like, <laughs> he really needs to like punch you in the face like that. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they are just trying to like portray him, you know, not just as like a murderer, but as you said, like a true sociopath, like someone who right. doesn't care at all for other people. He only cares about red, white. Maybe it's just because they only animated so many facial expressions for this man. But there is something about the shot of him just wailing on Phoenix with just this yeah. bright smile that, like, kind of shakes me. No, I, I think I think you're right. I think it's both things. You know, it is true. Yeah. I mean, you see this. You see this in visual novels all the time where they'll, you know, they have a relatively small number of, you know, frames that they've drawn and they'll, you know, kind of reuse or repurpose them. And that's fine. But I think, uh, yeah, the, the image of him, you know, where he just like punched you. And of course, you know, because it's like a first person thing you know from phoenix Wright's point of view you don't actually see him punch you it's like they kind of right create the illusion like the screen will flash white and you hear a sound effect but uh yeah the the fa- <laughs> the idea of him you know punching you right in the face like while just like grinning from ear to ear it is like a little creepy <laughs> yeah yeah like i i don't know he he's such an interesting character in, in that sense you know that that's actually a fair point like like i said i feel like i've kind of come around when it comes to red white like the like i said the first time i played the game i was almost like disappointed it's like ah man like you know this buffoon managed to like take down uh mia Fey. but now it's like yeah you think you might have convinced me he's a more i mean he's definitely a villain but he's a more interesting character than he uh initially appeared to me yeah he's he's a truly sinister character and good, good word i like that yeah <laughs> I think those are kind of the major points that come out of this first meeting with him. I would say, and I I tagged this in my notes, I think this is maybe the single most important scene in the case, is this encounter with Red White. And yeah, really kind of the most that you actually come out of it with is the information that the entire justice system is in his pocket. Lawyers, attorneys, police officers, judges... They yeah. all do his bidding. That is maybe the, the biggest central point that comes out of this meeting. You know, as you said, they're his playthings. And then that's kind of it, right? Otherwise, you yeah. see the painting, right? Which leads <laughs> into the conversation we have with Grossberg that we that happens after this, but we already talked about it. Um, yeah, no, I think that's fine the way that yeah, I think it's we went a little bit out of yeah. the game. But I think but I think it made sense for this discussion yeah so um and then basically phoenix says you know i i know what you did i know what's up um oh you know what i think there's one other thing that happens in this is this also the scene where uh red white says that phoenix is going to be the one accused of murder next i think that might be a later scene but it may not matter all that much okay Um, yeah yeah that that is there's one 
probably actually for our discussion might even make more sense to do it, but just, <laughs> just so nobody uh, at me on Twitter to go through like the actual order. You, you, um, you know, you go back to Grossberg's office. We already talked about that. You go back to the Faye and Co. offices. You look through uh, Mia's files that she has. Um, That's right. That. Yeah. So I'll just cover this kind of quickly. You, you, um, from reading the files, um, you know, uh, in her office, you learn that uh, there was a couple of interesting details. You could look through the different files. They're sorted alphabetically. Uh, you learn that um, Mia uh, also has, you know, the same spiritual powers of the Fey clan. You learn that Mia herself uh, held an audience with the dead. That's how um, she learned the names uh, Marvin Grossberg um, and also... I think I think this part is cut off in her notes, but it's obviously hinting at Red White. She learns these two names um, since she got Marvin Grossberg's name. That's the part that, as you said before, she was on a mission when she left the Fey Clan. Um, so, she... so yeah, just uh, to to talk about this scene in the Fey and Co law offices a little bit. Uh, yeah, I apologize. I feel like I've gotten us like a little out of order here because I'm like conflating nah, a few events here. But yeah, after the first encounter with Red White, we talk to Grossberg where we ask him about the blackmail. And then Grossberg ends that meeting by saying, Mia kept a lot of files on him. Go back to the office. Take a look at yeah. those. Right. Yeah. We go back to the offices and we could look through the files from a, f you know, they're sorted alphabetically and we're able to check different letter categories. Right. Yeah. And very interestingly, um, I believe it says that like the file that you would expect to be on red white is gone right there's nothing under r there's nothing under w right yep. but um i believe it's under s for suicide right yep. that phoenix finds a lot of notes uh with sort of like red white's name scrawled into the corners mm -hmm. right yeah um and yeah, he finds newspaper clippings on just like a bunch of suicides and stuff, and uh, he he holds on to that, right? Yeah, uh, and that's sort of the critical piece of evidence that you need from that scene. Um, mm -hmm. But if you look through D for DL six, right, that's when you get a few more information on the DL six incident, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. That's where you learn that Mia used her ESP connection to find the link between Grossberg and Red White. Mm -hmm. um, which I agree. I also found this to be very interesting in that um, you learn that Mia used her psychic connection for casework. Yeah. And this is something I didn't notice on like my first playthrough. Because um, I always thought that like, you know, we knew that Mia was part of the Fae clan where they said, you know, all the women had this kind of psychic power. I didn't think that was ever like explained like in game, like if Mia had ever you know, had this psychic connection or been able to use this power. But apparently she did, because that's how she learned these names of Marvin Grossberg and Red White. And that's when she left the Fae Clan. She was determined to um, become a lawyer. I don't know if we learned this. I don't remember if we learned this in-game or if I'm just remembering this from <laughs> playing other Ace Attorney games. But we know that Mia left the Fae Clan. She went to, air quotes, Los Angeles. Um, we, she, uh, became Marvin Grossberg's, uh, apprentice, I guess, and worked for like the Grossberg law offices. So that's kind of how she, um, got started towards this path of, you know, taking down this criminal red white. Yeah. And I, like, I find it interesting too, that she did use her ESP for casework because, um, you know, like you said, she left the mountain to start to become her, to start her career as a lawyer. Right. 
Yeah. In my head, I kind of thought of that as her abdicating her role as a medium, but clearly mm-hmm. not. Clearly, she yeah. still did it, right? Yeah. Which kind of fits with her character, right? That she kind of, she would not leave that advantage just sitting on the table, you know? Yeah. She was born with this psychic connection. Yeah, she's going to use it. She's going to use it to find out that Grossberg was blackmailed by White, you know? Um, So I I thought that was such a small detail that wasn't even part of the critical path, but is a very interesting one. Now, I hope that doesn't introduce like plot holes when when we when you and I, you know, if we continue this podcast into the third game, I'm going to remember this moment and be like, well, wait a minute, if we we now know Mia had these powers... (laughs) But the, but the whole sorry, time, I'm ju- yeah, I'm jumping ahead. That's <laughs> let's, true. Let's focus on this on this case. So there's one other interesting thing that I found from the, this short little scene in the Fay and Co law offices, right? What's that? So um, the the critical piece of evidence that Phoenix finds is under S for suicide. It's the newspaper paper clippings that have handwritten notes about Red White. The case file in the DL six incident had Red White's name purged from it, right? And then the actual file on Red White himself was taken from the library, right? What I suspect had happened is that Red ordered the police investigation team to destroy any evidence that implicated him from the Fay & Co. law office. However, I I think Mia anticipated this and intentionally left these critical pieces of evidence in unassuming files. Yeah, so th- <clears throat> I'm glad you brought this up because on the one hand, maybe this is a minor detail. On the other hand, this is something I was a little unclear on, which is, um, you know, the specific file on, um, uh, what is it, on Red White was missing. But then I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> you know, we know that we're going to have some information <laughs> that is read at the end of this case. It- is that the file? And like, is that... Is that the paper that she hid in the thinker in the beginning? This actually seems like an important piece of information that maybe I didn't understand. That's my guess, right? Okay. So at, at the end of this case, um, yeah, we will we will receive an important piece of evidence in a unusual way, and I suspect that that piece of evidence is what was being stored in the thinker, um, and is what Red White was going after at the beginning of the case. So that's what I had assumed, but I which sure is never, like explicitly. Yeah, that is kind of interesting that um, the game never actually tells us what evidence yeah. was being kept in the thinker. The The game yeah. never explicitly shows us the evidence that Red White killed for. Okay, so now I don't feel quite so bad about missing yeah. that detail. Yeah, no, that's not on you. you the, the game super just sort of glosses over that. Okay. And I'm actually Who knows? okay with that. It's possible that she was just keeping, like, you know, her fanfic in the thinker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, her Steel Samurai fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mia was keeping her Steel Samurai fanfic in the Thinker statue, and that's oh, why that's Red great. White wanted it so bad. I love that. Awesome. All right, so uh, hold on. We uh, so we talked about the Fade and Kill offices. We talked about the information we learned from reading uh, Mia's files, and now we go back to Blue Corp. And this is the part that you were talking about earlier. We now have this newspaper clipping, which you can. Um, Oh man, refresh my memory. What's I'm getting I'm getting things mixed up because there's the the missing information that we think Mia hid in the statue. What was this? Right. So exactly that. Yeah. So what this is? This is about the suicides. Right. What Phoenix collected was just sort of a mysterious newspaper clipping referencing the suicide of a um 
a, a very influential like politician or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And then it very sort of vaguely referenced a connection to Red White, right? Yeah, it's like the the very mysterious, <laughs> yeah, apparent suicide. So <laughs> Phoenix uh, returns to Bluecore, right, with both this newspaper clipping and also the information on blackmail that he received from Grossberg, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. And he he kind of bursts into Bluecore and. Um, he says this company is built on blackmail, pretty much. Yeah. He he basically says in no uncertain terms, I know you're blackmailing Grossberg. I know you're connected to DL6. Um, yeah, I know that you've been threatening and coercing, you know, all these people. I know that you were involved in those suicide cases that Mia was investigation investigating. Yeah. Um, you know, basically Phoenix just lays it all out on the table. And and oh man, does this at least initially, uh, go very badly for Phoenix Wright because <laughs> at this point, uh, Red White accuses Phoenix Wright of the murder of Mia Fey, and uh, he uses his connections, right? He calls up the police, uh, tells them that it wasn't actually uh, Maya who murdered uh, Mia. It was actually Phoenix Wright, and um, he says that he's going to testify against you, and because... You know, the courts are basically in his pocket, like he's blackmailing all these, you know, judges and politicians and everyone. He says that, you know, he can manipulate the courts and you're going to go to jail for a murder. And apparently now, you know, we spent the whole first day uh, defending Maya. Apparently she's off the hook now <laughs> because <laughs> she's no longer on trial. And tomorrow the trial for uh, Phoenix Wright <laughs> for murdering Mia Faye is going to begin again. Not even close to how any. <laughs> legal system works right in any other context it would be an insane assertion right yeah. for over the course of 24 hours the entire case to switch from actually we were all completely wrong about the girl that we thought was the killer now it's this yeah. completely different man and we have an entirely new witness which again maybe maybe if you're maybe if you're an attorney IRL uh, don't play this game you'll probably just get infuriated well it, the thing is it doesn't have to make sense because red white owns the system if he says phoenix Wright is the murderer and he saw it everyone just has to go along with it it doesn't have yeah. to make sense he can just say it and that's up to the prosecution's office to make a case for it and it's up yeah. to the judge to i guess have to go along with it as well you know and we already know the prosecutor in this case will do anything to get a guilty verdict. So uh, exactly. not looking good for, for our hero, Phoenix Wright. Exactly. Uh, Red White announces his intent to um, testify against Phoenix on the trial tomorrow. Things are not looking too good for our uh, defense attorney. Right. So I think we're about to uh, go into the final scene of this uh, investigation phase. So we, uh, at this point, leave uh, Blue Corp and go back to the detention center where we talked to Maya one last time. Yeah, we don't quite leave oh. Blue Corp on our own accord. Well, we, we, we do leave We Blue are Corp. arrested. Yes, fair point. Um, so it is kind of funny. I think they make a point of saying that you're in the detention center, but you're on the opposite side of the glass now. Uh, you're the one who's arrested, and uh, Maya is talking to you uh, from the other side now that she's off the hook. There, there's some dialogue options here. You get some kind of funny flavor text depending on what you say. Uh, basically, you know, asking what Maya asked what she can do to help. One of the options, which I thought was pretty funny, was uh, you can ask her to try and break you out of prison. <laughs> I think, I think the this this dialogue tree is so good for just characterizing Maya 
right? Because no matter yeah, what point. you pick, she is she is ready, right? Oh, she's like, she's a hundred percent on board. The the exchange for help me break out of here is so funny. She's like, "All right, what do you need? I'll get a blowtorch. I'll get a hacksaw. Like, let's get you out of there, Phoenix." Yeah, she's like, "Let me get to the hardware store before it closes." <laughs> Maya's, Maya's great. I, I I'm so sad that we lost Mia, but Maya is a great uh, assistant. Yeah, she's an awesome yeah. uh, sidekick character uh, to Phoenix. All right, so anyway, um, yeah, we talked to Maya. They they have the dialogue option of what you what she can do to help. Um, I think the one that actually makes most sense for like the actual story would be ask her to cheer you on in court. But yeah, yeah. I recommend uh, choosing break me out of jail. Cause it's the funniest. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, at this point, th- this is great. Cause this is where they have the throwaway line where they explain the three day limit on trials. Oh, where... right. So after our exchange with Maya, we fade to black and Phoenix sort of muses over the state of the criminal justice system. Yeah. So he talks about how they have this three day limit where, um, you know, it's, I think we talked about this in uh, the last episode a little bit, but this is where it's made clear, like in game where they explain, <laughs> they, they at least attempt to do a little bit of a hand wavy explanation at the, you know, the wacky court system they have where they're saying, you know, the court was completely overwhelmed with like the number of uh, criminal trials. And in order to kind of deal with that, they set up this like, th- th- like a pre-trial almost with like a three day limit where, um, they almost all end with a guilty verdict and you're kind of like given this opportunity to like, I, I don't know how much of this they make explicitly clear in game versus how much you're supposed to infer, but it's basically like you, you get a three day limit for this trial. You as the defendant, it's like a flip of, you know, how it works in real life where we have the presumption of innocent until proven guilty. You know, it's like, you're almost like assumed guilty and you get this opportunity three days to prove that you're innocent. And if you can prove that, that there is, you know, completely no value in continuing this trial, like you are definitely innocent, then you're off the hook. Otherwise, you're found guilty at this, you know, kind of pre-trial and you have like a late a trial scheduled at like a later date. It's kind of, on the one hand, good they included this to attempt to explain the ridiculous justice system. <laughs> they really do keep the details vague in this passage yeah. specifically, right? Yeah. Basically, Phoenix just says that there was a limit of three days put on initial court trials yeah. and that almost all of them finish in a day. Most of them yeah. finish with a guilty verdict, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess when he says initial court trials, that's maybe a reference yeah. to a sort of pretrial system where more questionable yeah. cases are sent to a higher authority. But that's never really relevant in these games. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah, it, it, it sets these very clear stakes of. All of these cases that Phoenix is going to participate in will take no longer than three days, right? Yeah. Whatever the case so that, is. that part will be important later. Yeah. They have three days to figure out any murder that happens in this series, right? Yeah. Um, now, this sort of description of the justice system is actually, um, from what I understand, right? And I'm no mm. cultural expert. I believe it's not entirely f- fake, right? It is sort of a reflection of uh, the Japanese justice system, right, where uh, in many cases the court is very ruthless towards defendants, right? Uh, Again, from what I understand and, you know, as an American, maybe I'm I'm out of term here. Um, From what I understand, generally prosecutors are given greater resources, right? Mm -hmm. They are given greater credibility and it really is an uphill battle for the defense attorneys who are typically like, 
you know, more private agents, right? Like, you know, kind of just independent, uh, you know, agents who have to do all this stuff themselves, right? Um, yeah. It's surely not as cartoonish as it is presented <laughs> in the Ace Attorney series, but I don't think it would be it's... a lot more interesting. If it were. Oh, for sure. But yeah, so I, I think the way it is represented in game while silly is at least yeah. grounded in some amount of reality. Yeah. And I mean, I, again, like you, I am an American, so I want to be careful to stay in my lane, not comment too much, or at least make it clear that anything I say is, you know, just what I as an American have read on the internet. <laughs> but yeah, I do think you're right. I have read this statistic that in Japanese think in Japanese criminal courts uh at least I don't know if this has changed if this statistic is outdated or whatever but I have read that like they get around a 90 percent conviction rate which seems very high uh I think people kind of jump to the conclusion that courts are uh, biased against the defendants I've read several possible explanations like um you know it could be the case that uh prosecutors don't bother pursuing a trial unless you know they have in pretty substantial evidence so okay um, there, there are a couple of possible explanations uh, in any case i've never been to japan i've never been on trial so this is uh not something i'm an expert in you've never been arrested on the murder charges of your former mentor <laughs> not even once interesting i i think it's something we all go through honestly but yeah. okay <laughs> sooner or later um, all right, so I think that wraps up uh, investigation day two. We yeah, that this. that ends our investigation day. Phoenix very much has the deck stacked against him here, uh, being that he himself has been arrested and he is now up against the testimony of basically uh, uh, a man whose word will be treated as absolute truth. Yes. So uh, at this point, we... Uh, get an opportunity to save, and then we jump into uh, the next day, which I didn't write in my notes, but I believe it's September 8th. This is uh, day two of the trial, or really day one of I guess so. trial, since Maya's off the hook now. I don't know, this whole court system is very wacky. <laughs> but you have, you have a good scene. Uh, I actually like this first interaction you get. This is uh, in the lobby outside the actual courtroom. Uh, where you were talking to the prosecutor, uh, Miles Edgeworth, and he warns you that you will be found guilty. Yes. Uh, I thought this scene was really good. We, we learned a little bit more about um, Edgeworth's backstory. We know that he uh, believes that, you know, basically all people lie, and uh, therefore, you know, his job as the prosecutor is not to, you know, find the truth, but just assume that anyone on the witness stand is lying if they say, you know, they're not guilty and that his job is that he must. Yeah, he he it. has a line that I think kind of represents his whole ethos at this point in time. Right. Go on. Where he says, you know, Maya says, how can you torment an innocent person like this? And he says, there's no way to tell who is guilty and who is innocent. All that I can do is get yeah. every defendant declared guilty. So I make that my policy. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then we get a great line uh, from Phoenix Wright where he says, Edgeworth, you've changed. Yeah. It's it's good. such a powerful line, I feel. See, th again, I know I probably sound like a broken record saying this, but I, I just think these games are so good at like 
just giving you like just like the tiniest like plot thread almost like teasing you like yeah you know it's like wait like he says you know Edgeworth you've changed like so now we know like Phoenix right like knows Edgeworth from like right before. not only does he know Edgeworth but he knows him well enough to judge his character and that also he is able to judge that he's changed it's it's a very simple line but it says a lot and edgeworth pretty much leaves it at that he tells phoenix you know don't expect don't expect me to go easy on you like if i raise an objection they will listen to me white's testimony will be treated as truth so good luck bye yeah so so things are not looking good uh for phoenix right you've got you know this uh witness supposed witness uh red white you know he's going to take the stand who um you know has the whole court system like in his pocket you've got this you know ruthless prosecutor edgeworth who will do anything to get a guilty verdict like you know they explain this three-day trial system where you know even without those other factors like the deck is kind of stacked against you so so things are not looking good (laughs) they 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 do a very good job at building suspense and establishing uh, the high stakes involved here yeah after that we go into the courtroom and now we begin the trial so we get you know uh kind of short not even opening statements it's more just yeah so the trial actually starts remarkably quickly it it seems like everybody is already completely on board with what has happened as we mentioned previously like this is a pretty big change to have a change of witness to have a change of defendant really to have a whole change in the sequence of events but No, it seems like Edgeworth, it seems like the judge, it seems like everybody is already completely on board and ready to proceed. So Yeah, which is kind of funny. And it, it, you know, from our perspective, like as the player, you know, it makes sense. Like we've already gotten all the necessary explanation. You know, we've learned, you know, a lot about uh, Red White, how he's this powerful, you know, blackmailer who has, you know, the court system under his control. We know you know about edgeworth but yeah from everyone else's point of view it must seem incredibly abrupt because it's really just you know the judge saying all right day one of the trial of phoenix right let's go yep <laughs> just like prosecution is ready your honor defense is ready and uh we jump right into it yeah they basically say red white introduce yourself he does and yeah. then it goes right into his cross-examination well, well so, I, I do want to spend just a minute on his I, uh introduction because oh, this was hilarious yes. to me uh, you so, are probably going to pick the exact same line i wanted to go well, for we, it we've heard this line before <laughs> which is red white says he's going to give you the title of his personage oh my gosh <laughs> and it's a great it's great because you know he said this uh the previous day when you know we as the player character phoenix right we're talking to him but then you know he uses the same line in edgeworth you know this kind of you know bombastic like you know grandiose language and um edgeworth just has no patience for it and just yep. you know it, I, again we were talking before about how like you know um visual novels how they, they'll in some ways, it seems like a cost-cutting measure. In other ways, I think it's like really clever the way they do stuff like this. Like they'll reuse animations. So we see we have the animation where Edgeworth, you know, bang the desk, and sure enough, he goes, "Your name." Yeah, <laughs> got no patience for the title of my personage. And uh, Phoenix Wright is like, "These two are great together." Yep. So, so just a funny line. The line I actually loved from Red White's introduction is that uh, he says, "My friends call me Blanco Nino." which yes. uh, um, i i'm i'm not much of a of a linguist but uh from what i understand that pretty directly translates to white boy yes <laughs> which is so funny 
for him for <laughs> red white. It's not inaccurate. <laughs> it's not inaccurate, but um, yeah, I I think that's so funny. Um, yeah, he he definitely red white has big white boy energy, right? Yes, very very much sort of white boy summer energy for sure. So yeah, I was yeah. big fan of that line. But yeah, right. so we basically jump right into his uh, first witness account. Yeah, so we've already, you know, established the stakes. We know that things are not looking good for Phoenix Wright. And at this point, uh, Mr. Red White jumps into his uh, witness testimony. So, um, again, I might count on you to uh, fill in any blanks I might uh, miss here. So please interrupt me. But sure. this, uh, So Mr. White testifies that he saw uh, Phoenix Wright attack Mia. Um, I didn't write down too many details. I think it's kind of a... St- straightforward albeit untruthful <laughs> account of the incidents yeah um, it, it's an interesting testimony because it's uh actually remarkably long it, it's 10 statements in total but um really at its core he kind of just reprises the same story we heard from april may on the previous day right and, and since you brought up the number of statements one thing i kind of noticed um as someone who's recently completed the new uh i should say newly uh English localized games, uh, the great Ace Attorney Chronicles. Um, I feel like they kind of, through, you know, the experience of, you know, making many, many uh, Ace Attorney games, I feel like they've kind of got it down to a science and like codified a lot of these things. One thing I noticed in the newest uh, kind of two part game, uh, great Ace Attorney is, uh, I think, at least with rare exception, the uh, witness testimony is always exactly five statements so they, really? they avoid this yeah so they avoid this, this kind of thing where like sometimes you'll get you know very brief like only two or three statements and versus sometimes you get the super long rambling like 10 statement thing so it seems like they've kind of got it down to a science or you know made it feel like you know cleaner or whatever uh, but yeah this is a very long testimony and i have to admit i didn't i don't know if i even bothered pressing every single statement so if there was any interesting flavor text I missed, uh, please let me know. Sure. But, but yeah, this is a very long um, testimony. But the important part is when he says that uh, the victim, uh, Mia, ran to the left. Yes. We know, <laughs> we know uh, from the previous day, we have the testimony of uh, Miss April May, most of which was thrown out because she just lied through her teeth the whole time. But there's one statement that we saved, which is uh, that Mia ran to the right so pretty obvious contradiction right there um but it was kind of clever the way they handle it because when you uh, point this out they have uh, some dialogue where you know edgeworth is you know kind of pressing you to like you know explain this apparent contradiction and right um red says it was to the left may says it was to the right how could both of those be true there's no way yeah so i thought it was actually kind of clever the way they handled that and they give you like several options you could say that you know red white is correct you could say april may was correct but then i think they pretty sure that's how they did it right and then they had the third option which is both are right and then you know uh edgeworth is like how can that possibly be true the very cool thing about that dialogue tree is all three of them Mm -hmm. are correct and in all three of them, Phoenix explains himself very confidently. Oh, so I, I, I just I chose that they're both right because that seems like right. the most correct. But it you, is the you, most correct. But no matter which one you say, you you do get this good shot of like, ooh, I'm correct, you know? Yeah, so that, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, so Mish, how could they both be correct? She either went to the left or to the right. Well, well here's the thing. Uh, 
it appeared from Red White's perspective that uh, Mia ran to the left. And the reason for that is that uh, Red White was in the office at the Wait, time of the murder. But that's where the killer was. In fact, it is. And that is exactly what you, you get the map where they have the victim and the killer, you know, indicated there. And you have to point out where Red White was standing and... Sure enough, that's Edgeworth's reaction. Like, but wait, that's where the killer was. Exactly. And this is the first of, I think, like several times, like they, they do a similar thing, like spoiler in uh, one of the Apollo Justice cases, you know, pointing out that, wait, we've got this whole thing backwards, but it's, you know, a literal turnabout where, you know, you have to turn this whole thing on its head and you look at it from like the exact opposite perspective. And it's like, yeah, Red White was uh, viewing the killer, um, you know, from the opposite perspective as uh, April May. So when it appeared to her that the victim ran to the right, it appeared to Red White that she ran to the left because he was standing exactly where the killer was. Yep. So that's an interesting theory, but that's insane. Red White Mm -hmm. wasn't in the Fay and Co. law offices, okay? He just Mm -hmm. misremembered his testimony a little bit. He. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so it's time for him to revise his testimony. So, so in true uh, Ace Attorney fashion, it's time for the witness to revise their testimony, <laughs> which, again, just like the, just like the degree to which the court is like stacked against you. But in any case, yeah, he's allowed to revise his testimony. So he says that, um, yeah, there's like a whole series of kind of you know back and forth statements he says oh well you know she she ran to the left and then she ran to the right because she ran left and then you hit her once and then she ran right again this is another pretty obvious contradiction you present the autopsy report even even the updated autopsy report yes. still indicates that she was only uh hit once luckily edgeworth doesn't give you the updated updated autopsy report <laughs> yeah the updated updated autopsy report that says that mia was actually hit twice yeah which would have been hilarious <laughs> Oh, my God. I wouldn't put it past Edgeworth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, the crux of his revised testimony is that he asserts that, yeah, Mia dodged left and then she dodged right, getting hit each time. And that's how both May and uh, Red could both, you know, recall the same sequence of events that way. So then um, at this point, uh, Red White starts becoming kind of flustered. He he wants to end his testimony. He says he has a stomach ache and I love that. tells him to deal with it. <laughs> I love that. I love the line of Phoenix very smugly saying deal with it. It's so I imagine that imagine that meme where like the sunglasses just like descend from the oh, top of the screen. <laughs> which is so on brand for the time, right? For two thousand and one. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Per it's perfect. And the golden age. Yes, yeah, so at memes. this point at this point Edgeworth sees that um you know, Red isn't doing so well, and he asks for a recess, right? And I do like this part, because the judge almost complies, right? Yeah. You know, the two of them being very amenable towards Red's, you know, desires. But uh, mm. what actually happens is the gallery demands justice. The yeah. The general public is so invested in this uh, in this case that they kind of cause a ruckus. Yeah. So, so that's like the thing that you always describe as the there's the, the kind of the turnabout and then the pursuit where, you know, you're no longer the one. I mean, you're always the defense attorney, but you're no longer on the defensive in the sense that, like, you know, things are uh, 
like the tide is starting to shift like in your favor. I, I think we might have skipped like a couple of the details. There was the contradiction about how um, Red White like claims that he saw the broken light stand, but you know if he was in the hotel window, how how could he have known that it was a light stand? He would have just seen these like broken shards. Like yeah, that actually comes up in the uh, next testimony. I see. Um, so I might have uh, gotten things a little out of order. In any case, um, eventually, yeah, like you were saying, um, you know, people are now on your side. There's um, he claims that he saw the light stand fall. Um, oh, this is where um, when it appears that you know things are starting to shift in your favor and you kind of have him on the ropes. This is where uh, Edgeworth says that Red White should admit to his crime, and that is the crime he's referring to is of course placing the wiretap. So um, th this is the next way that Red White kind of changes his story. He says that, you know, he didn't murder Mia Fey, but his story now is that he recognized, um, you know, he was able to identify this broken object as a light stand because he had seen it previously, because he was in the Fey and Co. offices in order to place this wiretap. Um, and at this point, it it's like you, you got like a brief glimmer of hope and then it's almost immediately crushed because there appears to be no contradiction in his uh, latest testimony. You can press right. any statement. And, and I do, I like this moment because it, it is very dramatic, right? Yeah. Where Edgeworth is like, all right, it's time that you confess to your crime. And that crime that he's confessing to is the wiretapping. And it's it's to resolve this problem that, um, you know, it, it's to explain that Red was in the Fay and Co. law office at this mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And... I kind of like this because I feel like it's one of those things that Edgeworth prepared ahead of the trial as a sort of like emergency, you know, break glass in case of, you know, yeah. event. Right. Obviously, yeah. he doesn't want Red to be um, culpable for any crime, but wiretapping is a much lesser charge than uh, murder, you know. So, yeah, he has. Well, re yes. So, so I think I think you're you're totally right. I might just say a little bit or push back on one thing i'm not sure edgeworth gives a crap about red white he just wants to get his guilty verdict all he cares That's about is you know phoenix writes the one well it was originally maya now phoenix writes the one on trial he's like i gotta get my guilty verdict actually i guess that's more to the point right is yeah. um yeah he he wants uh phoenix to be declared guilty and yes. if th if that means throwing red under the bus a little bit for wiretapping then yeah he'll yeah. do it yeah exactly so and and I think I'm actually really glad you interrupted me to bring that up because that that's um, some more good uh, backstory or characterization for Edgeworth. You know, just showing how like ruthless he is, how he's willing to you know, like he doesn't care about like who actually placed the wiretap. Like he'll you know allow his witness to lie in the stands. Like he just cares about you know getting Phoenix rights. Now the one on trial is like I gotta get Phoenix Wright declared guilty. Yeah. So this leads into the final testimony of the case, and it's yep. actually a fairly important one for a few reasons, right? It's a very simple testimony. It's only mm -hmm. four statements where basically he says, hey, it was a week before the murder. I broke into yep. the law offices and I placed the wiretap. That's yep. when I saw the glass light stand before it fell mm -hmm. over and broke. That's how I knew that the glass shards were from the light stand. Right. That's when I saw it while it was intact. No problem. Right. And this is kind of an interesting. There's an interesting thing that happens uh, in order to progress through this testimony. You have to press every single statement yeah. and ultimately conclude there are no flaws. 
Yeah. It's the first time in the game that this happens where the way to progress is just to test all possible avenues. Um, And then the game moves you along from there. Right. And and I think that's really effective in this case because it really um, highlights that, like, yeah, you've reached a true dead end. Like, you are out of ammunition. There's nothing you have in the court record that can contradict any of this. I do have mixed feelings on this sort of uh, a gameplay mechanic right which does come up a few times throughout the series where yeah. there are no right answers because on one hand it does force you to sort of feel that helplessness right you're looking through your court record you're looking at all of your evidence you're looking at the statements and you realize i've got nothing right yeah. you press every statement out of desperation maybe something will come up and you've yeah. got nothing right from yeah. a narrative standpoint it's actually pretty effective but from a gameplay standpoint, it's a little frustrating. And yeah. I recall when I played through the series, you know, previously, it did lead to these sort of tedious moments where if I wasn't sure what to do, I would just press every single statement just as a matter of course. Right. Yeah. Where I'd be like, OK, is this one of those press, 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 you know? So it. I think in this case, it is very effective, but. Yeah. I think maybe we'll feel differently about this sort of thing happening later in the series. But um, so yeah, yeah. I don't know if I felt that way personally, but I, but I do think that's a fair point. I could totally see where you're coming from because I know, um, you know, I keep saying how this game is very good at building suspense. And I talk about, you know, the rising tempo in the music is, you know, you're going through your cross-examination, you know, with each new contradiction you find. And, you know, here obviously is like the height of the suspense, you know, you're truly like out of ammunition. But I think, um, you know, to your point, you just kind of have to press every statement and then <clears throat> realize there is no contradiction. And, and then it, in general, in the Phoenix Wright games, or Ace Attorney games, I should say, you can you can choose to press every statement the witness makes. And, you know, there's generally no penalty for that. So I think it is just kind of easy to, like, default to that of, like, okay, you know, let me fall into this routine where, you know, I listen to the full testimony and I'm going to press every single statement and I'm going to do this. And it's like, you know, you can do that generally without penalty so that a little bit kills the suspense once you as the player kind of realize that i think they did try to combat that in at least a couple of instances i know there are it doesn't normally happen but in some later cases the judge will warn you he's like oh phoenix right you're up to your old tricks again like i'm gonna give you a penalty if you just go off on this you know fishing expedition you know randomly pressing statements so i think they try and combat that later but yeah i get what you're saying yeah it it does feel like throughout this series uh the game does kind of struggle with making these mechanics engaging right yeah uh which has i would say mixed results in this case i think it's pretty successful so after you know phoenix exhausts all available options uh he receives a unlikely message Indeed, he does. <laughs> Would you like me to describe this message? Yeah, or go like for the it. Honor? Uh, the message is from none other than the murder victim, uh, Mia. She appears, you know, wearing the same black suit and pencil skirt that we saw her in the professional attire from before, and she says, Never give up. Obviously, this is very shocking uh, for Phoenix Wright, and I believe and he, he just passes, passes out the fuck time. out. <laughs> and, and you wake up, you know. In the uh, defendant lobby where, again, you see the chief a second time. I think he, you know, passes out like a second time. He's like, ah, it's Mia. Um, Eventually, you realize that it is uh, 
apparently the body of Mia Fey, but dressed uh, in Maya's clothing, the uh, acolyte robes with the same kind of top knot, you know, hairstyle and jewelry and all that. So um, at this point, we learn that uh, it is Maya who, uh, as a member of the Fey clan, is able to use this uh, summoning technique, and she has uh, summoned her older sister from beyond the grave. <laughs> so it is uh, the uh, deceased uh, communicating with us uh, through Maya. Yeah, she explains that uh, when Phoenix accepted his defeat in court, it gave Maya enough of a shock to awaken her true powers for, yeah. for you know, a moment. Which is awesome. That is such a good way to, to introduce this uh, summoning technique that we'll see, you know, throughout the series. I think it's really cool. I can see Maya watching, you know, Phoenix's apparent defeat and, like, you know, sort of the adrenaline building up in her and being like, okay, like, I need to do something. And that kind of pushes her yeah. over the edge to contact to, to reach her sister. And, and you know what? I think there's actually one point that we might have touched on previously that we probably should have mentioned at the beginning of this trial is we had talked about how, um, you know, basically all Ace Attorney games, well, maybe not all, uh, most Ace Attorney games, you play as a uh, defense attorney where, you know, you're defending your client and you'll often have kind of a sidekick or like a support character helping you. Um, in the first trial in this game, it's the chief, uh, Mia. Of course, she gets killed off pretty quickly. And then, um, you know, we talked about before how Maya was uh, kind of slowly and gradually stepping into this role. Like I think right. you pointed out the previous day, like she she's on like the, you know, the stand, I guess the designated area for the defendant, but she like crumples up this note and throws it to you. So she's yeah. start giving advice. At this point, she's... Um, you know, since she's been cleared of her crime, she's, you know, next to you at, you know, the area, like the bench where the, you know, defense is. So so she's fully stepped into this role as um, your sidekick. And uh, as such, uh, she has used her ability uh, to summon Mia. So now it's uh, really Mia communicating through her younger sister, you know. Uh, with yeah. At, at this point, Maya is totally on team right. You know, she is on yes. the bench. She is there helping Phoenix. Yeah, we, we had she, she's previously. Again, I, you know, I talked about before how um, I think they were just so good at, you know, making you feel a genuine connection to this character, Mia, you know, in such a short time. It was it actually like, you know, sad to lose her. And I think Maya's a great uh, support character. <laughs> so Maya's a fantastic she, she support She had some character. big shoes to fill, and uh, good on you, Maya. Yeah, for sure. So I would say what happens next is maybe a, a top 10 just ace attorney moment in how kind of silly it is. Mia comes <laughs> back on. from the dead yeah. to give Phoenix the tip that he needs to win. She yes. explains that you've already won. Mm-hmm. How is it that he's already won? What is the detail he's missing? Well, you already have the evidence you need uh, to win this trial. It is already in the court record. It is the, uh, not anything that you used today, but it came up in the previous trial. It is the uh, note that has the name Maya written in blood. Uh, more specifically, this uh, name Maya is written on the back of a receipt. A receipt for it's yeah, it's a receipt for a glass light stand. Yeah, you you've I, literally got receipts for this. How did you feel about this twist that he just needed to flip it over? That he needed Mia to come back from the dead to tell him to flip it over. You know, th this is another thing. I think generally I did like it. I mean, I I, 
love Ace Attorney. I love the story. I guess I had a little bit mixed feelings about this because um, I think it was a very good way. You know, they, again, I keep talking about how they're very good at, you know, teasing you with these like plot threads that, you know, they'll flesh out more later. Like they, it's like they make you work uh, to learn more of this story. So, you know, they've already like established this world where, you know, spirit mediums exist, where, you know, they can uh, summon the dead. uh, And you know that, you know, the Fey clan has this ability, but, um, you know, Maya was still in training, so she couldn't use this ability yet. And, you know, kind of makes sense in the world they've established that, um, you know, under this high pressure situation, it was enough to kind of like kickstart her abilities and summon Mia. So, so all that I think is like good storytelling because this is something that they definitely did like foreshadow. I I think it's even fine that like she gave you the hint you needed about the receipt. I think the the one thing, like I say, I generally did like it. The one thing that gives me a little bit of hesitation is you're kind of railroaded it's not like you as the player get to make any choice it's just like ah yes here's the one thing you need well yeah really what i'm specifically talking about is the fact that at no point phoenix just looked at the other side of the paper yeah (laughs) that's that's what i mean is that he has his life on the line here and he didn't think to just look at the reverse side yeah (laughs) no that's a fair point you know actually in later games um you get like actual like in-game mechanics where you can you know more thoroughly examine these piece of evidence you know you they think they yeah you can after. manipulate them in three dimensions and flip stuff over yeah. and yeah and if you're very thorough with that mechanic you can actually get ahead of the game with like some details yeah. and stuff which i think is very cool but i also do understand why these games do that the way they do because that sort of information does have to be very carefully controlled to yeah. sort of lead the case along so, yeah, so uh, I'll say that, about, you know, the great Ace Attorney that I just finished where I think they at that point they had kind of codified or, you know, fleshed out these mechanics in there. They yes. did a very good job of, you know, giving you the player like the freedom to, you know, look at <laughs> these evidence, piece of evidence, you know, from all angles. So, you know, using the mechanics in that game, like, yeah, you would have the ability to just flip the receipt over. Just and look flip at it over. It. Apparently they had not invented that mechanic yet. So, ah, yeah, I don't know. I guess well, I still generally like this, but a little bit of mixed feelings. Yeah, so what I'll say is that when my partner played this game, she thought it was bullshit. (laughs) Uh, You know what? That's a fair take. She thought it was so stupid. She thought it was so ridiculous that, like, yeah, this lawyer wouldn't just flip over the paper and look at the other side, you know? I am a little less thorough, right? So I didn't even really think about that, right? Yeah. I'm more forgiving with this detail. Uh, I could see... You know, somebody getting preoccupied with the bloody message on the front and not really thinking about the reverse side. Uh, But I could see I could see it being kind of a frustrating detail that Mia had to come back from the fucking dead to tell Phoenix Wright to flip over a piece of paper. Um, Now, with this bit, I do have uh, just one other detail about this Mm -hmm. receipt, right, that I I put down in my notes here. so the receipt specifically mentions that the standing floor lamp was a thousand dollars uh pretty pricey especially when you consider that like your average like nice ikea light stand is about three hundred dollars or cheap one is like 30 to 50 bucks right but adjusted for inflation that lamp is worth sixteen hundred dollars today right and i wanted to find this lamp 
Like I, you want to you, you buy a six, or excuse me, yes, uh, would you say $1,600 lamp? Yes, I wanted to find the lamp that Mia Faye bought, and I think mm. I found it. I'm going to send you a link to this lamp real quick. Right. Uh, tell me how that looks to you. All right, one moment. Hmm. Yeah, it is a stand floor lamp. <laughs> is, is that not the exact floor lamp that Mia got? I don't remember specifically what it looked this, like before it broke. This is the stand floor lamp by Christophe mm. Pillet from yeah. the Artemist uh, handcrafted um, Italian brand, right? Mm -hmm. It is yeah. $2,910, and I assert that this is the exact lamp that Mia Faye uh, bought for her law offices. All right, I'm, like, reading about this uh, designer now. Oh, yeah, it's it's a hell of a lamp, you know? And um, I don't know necessarily what this says about Mia, that she was w willing to shell out the big bucks for a floor lamp, right? Um, well, it, does, it does seem to contradict what you pointed out earlier, which I thought was really insightful. You know, the things that are important to Mia versus, you know, Grossberg versus Red White, which we all get a sense from their office. Uh, <laughs> this seems to be a counterexample to, you know, the inexpensive but, you know, sentimental items that Mia had. Uh, this just seems like a kind of expensive, gaudy item. <laughs> it, it Perhaps, right? The explanation mm -hmm. I could think of, and maybe I'm, I'm trying to post hoc give Mia some more credit here for buying a $1,000 lamp when a $50 lamp would have sufficed. Yeah. Maybe she has a taste for the arts. Yeah. It is a very tasteful sort of modern aesthetic lamp, handcrafted Italian lamp imported to Los Angeles. You know, mm. maybe uh, maybe she just has a taste for the arts. I think it's a very tasteful lamp and it's pricey, but not too lavish. Right. She yeah. keeps it in her client's seating area. Right. Mm. So maybe it's meant to sort of give a better vibe, better energy to her clients rather than to reflect on herself. I think it still fits with the narrative of Mia Faye, even if it feels like I'm trying to force it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could try and force my own explanation here. I could, you know, say like, oh, she bought this one day before she was murdered. Maybe she anticipated Red White was going to show up and she specifically bought this expensive lamp, which was uncharacteristic for her and saved the receipt because she knew it was going to be used. I don't think I could. I don't think that really holds water. That would be <laughs> That would be quite the reach. And, it, and that if she would had be incredible four-dimensional chess. That would be like 64-dimensional shoots yeah. and ladders. And if she anticipated that Red White was going to show up and murder her, then why didn't she just, like, prevent her death? So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's well, fun to think of theories like that, but I'm not sure. There's Maybe she knew game. that the only way Red White would be caught is if she was killed and let Phoenix defend against her we're at like yeah, 96 I mean, dimensional like <laughs> monopoly here right now so i actually do think it's kind of fun to come up with these like fan theories but i also don't think that they're necessarily supported by the text so you know listeners take this with a grain of salt yeah this is our official theory on why mia bought this lamp yes
Okay. <laughs> so the important detail here, after all this talk of receipts and lamps and, you know, prices and Italian yeah. craftsmen, uh, the point is she bought it yesterday. She yes. bought it the day she before bought it the murder. The day before yeah. the murder. Yep. That's the most important thing, right? Yep. So with this information, Wright is able to go back into the trial. Um, so Edgeworth gives Wright one last ultimatum as he returns to the court, and that is that mm. this is his last chance to turn around the case, right? Yeah. And that's that if he can't find a flaw in mm. Red's testimony, he will basically yeah. be uh, declared guilty like right there on the spot, pretty much. Which, you know, again, kind of conflicted feelings about that. Like, I don't think that's something like the prosecution should be allowed to do. <laughs> You know, I agree. You each, you each present your case. You don't say like, "Hey, this is your last chance. Otherwise, I win." Like what? Like, you can't but just they, make up the rules like that. I'll give him a free pass because it's good at um, building suspense. Right. It, it is again this sort of rising stakes that these games, yeah. you know, try their best to continue throughout each case, and I think it's yeah. fairly effective like that. It does have this silly energy of them basically treating the case like a sport, right? Yeah. Where they could just agree to different things. But yeah. I think it's okay. I think it works well enough. It's so, fine. interestingly, after this, I don't know why I found this so interesting. The game literally just puts you right back into the cross-examination, right? Mm. Like, Red White doesn't retestify or anything. It literally yeah. just, like, snaps right back into the uh, cross-examination you had already, you know, left off from. So, of course, the point here is that Red had said that he did the wiretapping a week prior to the murder. And that's when he yep. saw the lamp. But the receipt says that Mia bought the lamp one day before the murder, which... Mm -hmm obviously means he couldn't have seen the lamp a week ago. Right. So that is the uh, the piece of evidence. That is the contradiction that Phoenix points out. Yep. So so you uh, present this final piece of evidence. You yell, objection. You have found the contradiction. You know that um, it was impossible for, um, uh, for Red White to have seen this uh, glass uh, light stand, you know, even if he did place the wiretap. Um, at this point, you know, Edgeworth is getting desperate. He petitions the judge to prolong the trial. He says, give me one more day. We need yeah. more investigation. It, uh, it's luckily, actually pretty fun to see that last ditch object come from yeah. Edgeworth rather than Phoenix. It's it's nice to be on the other side of that. It It is actually very satisfying that they've, you know established him as this like ruthless prosecutor right you know, will do anything to see it. him grasping to see him yeah. like desperate like you know like phoenix is yeah like the the whole deck seems stacked in his favor until yeah. this point and now you know i really like the way you described it previously where you have you know it, things always you know seem very biased against you in the beginning but then eventually you have you know the turnabout where things shift and now you know you get to finally go on the uh, attack and, um, you know, at this point now, Edgeworth is the one kind of grasping at straws here, trying to, yeah. you know, delay or prolong the trial. Judge says, nope. Yeah. So Phoenix kind of presses the issue, right? Edgeworth yeah. requests one more day. And then uh, while this is, you know, while the judge is deliberating, uh, Mia gives Phoenix a list of names to read out loud. She yes. gives him no other context. She just 
you know, while she's being channeled, she writes down a list of names, hands it to Phoenix and says, just read this out loud. Yeah. And it is a, a list of the uh, names of people that Red White has been blackmailing, these, you know, politicians, you know, high-powered individuals. And she says, um, if you don't confess to your crime of murder, I will uh, leak these names to the press. And then, again, not really how the law works. I don't think, you know, even if he is guilty, I, I don't think you can threaten this guy <laughs> on the witness stand, but whatever. In any case, um, Red it's, White confesses. It's a pretty dramatic scene, right? Yeah. Mia says, you know, Mr. White, admit your guilt right here, right now, or this list will be released to the press, right? It is dramatic. And, you know what's funny is... It, well, what I like about it is it cuts to, like, this wide shot of the whole court, yeah. right? Yeah. It goes completely silent, right? You don't even yeah. hear the, like, sound effects of the text or anything. Yeah. And White just says, I, I confess. I did it. I hit her. I hit Miss Mia with the thinker. It's a pretty understated breakdown. Yeah, compared to uh, other witness breakdowns we get. Even compared to April, right? Where Phoenix is dropping, like, sick burns on her, right? Compared to, like, Frank saw it in the first case. Yeah, it's kind of tasteful. Like, I don't know. It's just, like, it's a really evocative scene. I feel like like the weight. I really like the way you described that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the weight of everything that Red White has done, you know, all the blackmail, all the, you know, extortion and coercion. It it all kind of falls upon him in that moment. I feel like. Yeah. I like the way you described it as understated. I think you're totally right. And it's funny because um, I I was, you know, like you were saying, your partner played this game and she kind of saw like the previous you know, thing is almost like an ass pull where, like, you know, they had to summon Mia from the dead to tell you to flip this receipt over. That part didn't bother me as much. I think initially I was more bothered by this part when, um, you know, I think I'm fine. I actually really like the way the Ace Attorney games do this where you have these support characters to help you out. But here, but it's it's generally like, you know, they'll you know, nudge you in the right direction or give you hints or whatever, but then it's, you know, you are the one who actually finds the contradiction here. It's almost like Mia delivers the finishing blow rather than you. I think initially that annoyed me, but I don't know. You might have changed my opinion on this. I really like the way you described the ending as, like, understated after all this drama and buildup. So, eh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe this does work. I actually really like that Mia gets to deliver the finishing blow. Because the way I see it, this is her fight, right? This is this is the man that basically sold out her mother. This is the man that killed her, right? It, it's the man she has been chasing for an unspecified amount of time. I guess up to 15 years, right? Um, really, I, I think it is so, so precious that she is able to sort of deliver that coup de grace. Right. Yeah. That even I, I from talk be- about- Yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say I always talk about you know how you have you know the main character in this case Phoenix Wright and then you have you know your various support characters here it almost you know like you said Mia delivers the finishing blow it's almost like you're the support character for her but it does kind of work because they establish you know she was on this mission you know to take down Red White so you know she maybe it is appropriate that she delivers the final blow I think you might have a. Uh, 
change my opinion on this ending. I actually kind of love that. The thought of you being her support character. And in a way, I feel like between this and the next case, right? This is kind of a transition for Phoenix between being a support character, between being Mia's apprentice, to being his own, you know, his own fully fledged lawyer, right? Yeah. And now you get your apprentice. You get your next apprentice. In this moment, Mia gets to wrap up her loose end, right? Like this is her unfinished business that she gets to sort of tie up, right? And after this, like, yeah, she kind of gets released back into the afterlife. She gets to see that satisfaction. Yeah. I I think it's really amazing closure for her character. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, I think you perfectly wrapped up the end of uh, this trial, but the... uh, it's not quite over yet because we get uh, a couple of, um, I was going to say after credit scenes. I guess that's yeah. not quite Just a the little right epilogue. Time, we, get, we, get, we get, yes, a little epilogue, a little closure here. Uh, so, so this case is closed. You know, Red White has uh, confessed to the murder of uh, Mia Fey. You get to talk to uh, Mia, who, you know, is still talking to you through uh, Maya. Um, outside the courtroom in the lobby, she says um, to meet her at her office tonight. And, um, so you show up at her office uh, later that evening, but instead of uh, Mia, you find her younger sister, Maya. <laughs> so she is, you know, back. This scene it, is so sweet. It's the best. It's, yeah. It's delightful. <laughs> so, so we get to see, um, you know, Maya is, you know, I guess she's done uh, summoning Mia. She's, you know, back in her own body. She has, you know, her usual appearance. Um and she says that uh, while she was summoning uh, Mia, that Mia wrote a note for her. And the note says, uh, take care of Phoenix. And at this point, she becomes your assistant. And uh, th- this part is great because it is the first time in the series uh, that instead of Phoenix, she calls you Nick. You have yeah. been given a literal nickname. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Nick is such a good shorthand for Phoenix. It's great. Yeah, that I, I feel like that's a great choice, you know, for the localization. Um, and I don't know, it's it's just such an endearing way for Meyer to refer to him, right? Yeah. She says that, um, you know, that's what Larry calls you. That's what I want to call you. We're friends now. Yeah. Um, and I do. I love that note too. Take care of Phoenix mm-hmm. for me, right? Oh yeah, it's great. In a way, I feel like it's kind of a way of Mia signaling to Phoenix, you know, take care yeah. of Maya for me, right? Yeah. But without, you know, sort of harming Maya's ego, right? Um, yeah. I, I, I don't well, know. It's I, interesting. They kind of take care of each other. <laughs> they do. And I feel like Mia kind of realizes that. And I yeah. think it's kind of a sweet way for her to look out for both of them. This was honestly just like a heartwarming scene because... Um, this is something that, you know, these games are very linear, but I think they do have a lot of replay value because, um, you know, knowing what we know is, you know, people who've, you know, played through these games uh, several times, you know, knowing uh, how their stories develop later on, um, just getting to relive um, this character growth in the scene of, you know, how, um, you know, Maya takes on her role, you know, as your apprentice uh, slash, you know, helper slash support character. Like, ah, this is just so good. Yeah. So we do get a very sweet uh, frame 
right? Yes. Uh, we, we get a very sweet original art frame of uh, Phoenix and Maya shaking hands, you know, mm-hmm. to signal the start of their, you know, their new partnership. Yeah. Uh, but then also Mia in her ghostly form, you know, holding yeah. both their hands and watching over them. And mm-hmm. she says, good luck, Phoenix. I'll always be here watching. It's great. It's and then great. they go out it's, for burgers. Yep. They, they go out for burgers. They go out for dinner. Uh, Maya says that she knows a place. And that's the end of the case. We did it. We, we did finished. it. We, we finished case 1-2, Turnabout Sisters. It's yes. done. Case closed. The, ca- the case has been three days, two investigations, two trials, ten mm-hmm. pieces of evidence, eight yep. character profiles, and ten cross-examinations i will i will take your word on those counts because <laughs> i did not uh verify those myself and also a running total of two people murdered by the thinker yeah that statue <laughs> man so we are we are pretty pretty far over time here but me but i almost called you me over time but yeah what's over time right uh i almost called you mia uh mish do you that. have it's a, it's a nice compliment? Yeah, hey, I'll, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> do you have any? Do you have any sort of final thoughts here? I'm go. I'm going through my notes because I did have some final thoughts, but I think um, we basically covered them all. Like as we were um, going through the plot summary. Yeah, you know, I love. I love the storytelling in the Ace Attorney games. I love that each one of these cases is its own uh, self-contained story. Uh, you know, I keep talking about how I love that they, you know, tease at these like plot threads that then, you know, get revealed. Some of them get revealed later in the same case. And then, you know, they'll take this case, you know, the murder of uh, Mia Fey by Red White. And, you know, you solve this case and they kind of, you know, t- tie a nice bow on this. But, you know, some of the details, it, you know, kind of pay off later this case where you learn about, um, you know, as you slowly gain more backstory about the characters about how Mia you know left the Fey clan how you know she used her summoning abilities to learn the names of uh, Marvin Grossberg and Red White how you know she left for you know Los Angeles on this mission and you know then her story is all wrapped up but then in addition to that you also get some plot threads that have not yet been resolved like we have learned about the DL6 incident so far in game we have learned that um, that their mother, Misty Faye, <clears throat> was involved in this case as a spirit medium. We know that she identified the wrong killer, and it was a great embarrassment to both the police and the Faye clan. But we don't know any other details about this case. We just know that this murder happened 15 years ago. They even said um, in this case that the DL6 incident, that the murder is unsolved to this day. Like, So, you know, I'm kind of wondering, well... I'm not wondering since I know, but if you were playing this for the first time, you might be wondering, oh, wait, what exactly is the DL6 incident? You know, what was this unsolved murder from 15 years ago? Are we going to get any more information about that? And, and other, you know, plot threads, we know that um, the Phoenix Wright and Miles Edgeworth, uh, the two attorneys in this case, have a history together. We know that um, you know, Phoenix Wright earlier said, Edgeworth, you've changed. You know, what did he mean by that? So, so the game's very good at very slowly and gradually giving you these plot threads, resolving some of them so that each case, you know, is its own self-contained story, but leaving some of them open, kind of hinting at future things. Like, it's 
It's like a master class in foreshadowing. I love it. So this kind of leads into, I guess, the main thing that I wanted to talk about at the at the end of the case here, right? Mm-hmm. And really, it's it's kind of just broadly speaking, everything that you just said, right? Yeah. And that is just the efficiency in storytelling that this game has. So this game, Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, uh, in its original form, only had four episodes, four cases, right? Right. That is not a lot of narrative space to tell a very thorough story, right? Four episodes is a pretty tight constraint. Imagine if that was a TV show, you know? Yeah. Uh, So they have to be very efficient with their storytelling. For as long as this game is, it's really pretty short for the story it wants to tell and the information it wants to deliver. And... I think this case, Turnabout Sisters, like you said, really is kind of a masterclass in that efficiency in storytelling. When you get down to it, the actual crime is incredibly basic. The actual actual details of this case are very basic. Red White kills Mia Fey to keep her quiet, and he fabricates a fake testimony against Maya. That's it. That's the whole case. Why does he do it? He does it because, you know, he doesn't want his blackmail getting out, right? It It's yeah. really a very simple story, right? But even so, this case has an incredibly steep order ahead of it. Not only does it have to tell an interesting self-contained story, it mm-hmm. also has to introduce several series-defining characters like yep. Maya, Edgeworth, Gumshoe, It also has to set up critical, overarching plot threads for this game, as well as the trilogy as a whole, like you talked about. And then on top of all of that narrative weight that it has to carry, it also has to introduce all of the investigation mechanics and flesh out the courtroom mechanics as well. It's a lot for one case to do in not even that much time. Yeah, it's... Man. And as you pointed out, in our previous episode, um, you know, they introduced these game mechanics, you know, diegetically as opposed to, you know, having these tutorials or, you know, explanation like dialogue boxes that, you know, kind of might take you out of the story. Like it's that's very well done. And um, yeah, you brought up, you know, future games like, you know, some of these plot threads that we mentioned, you know, it don't get resolved until the third game, which is, you know, at the end of you know, the main, you know, Phoenix Wright trilogy, like Phoenix Wright's uh, main kind of story arc. Um, But they're setting up plot threads now that they're going to reveal not one, but two games in the future. Like, they must have spent so much time and so much care into, like, storyboarding this thing, you know, knowing uh, these threads that they're going to resolve, you know, years later when this, like, future game comes out, like... It's excellent storytelling. Yeah, it's it really is a, a, a remarkable thing. So, I I think that's that's mostly uh, what I wanted to talk about. We did it. Case closed. I need a gavel to bang. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Well, before we do close things out, you know what time it is. Are you, are you gonna ask me to punch up the murder? It's time for punch up the murder. All right, uh, Mish, you are red white. You mm. are confronting your, I guess, legal rival. You could say, yeah. And you know she has you dead to rights. 
So you want to keep her silent forever. Mm -hmm. You want her eternal silence. Mm -hmm. What do you do? (sighs) Let's see. You know, I think, like, I think Red White would have been in the clear, but he was too um, arrogant, you know, thinking that he had, like, the whole justice system in the palm of his hand, you know, when he was confronted by Phoenix Wright, and, you know, he decided, like, you know... I'm not just going to continue this existing trial, you know, where Maya is the one on trial. Now I'm going to accuse you, Phoenix Wright, of murder, and I am going to personally take the uh, witness stand because, you know, that ended up being his undoing where, you know, Phoenix Wright was able to find these holes in his story. So I probably wouldn't have taken the witness stand. I would have just said, like, ah, well, good luck in court tomorrow <laughs> and just let the, let the trial of uh, Maya Faye continue. So, so you simply would not have accused the only person who has the most comprehensive knowledge of the entire case, and then also you wouldn't have willingly put yourself in the hot seat in front of him. Yeah, that's the problem with all these villains, man. They, they, it's like you catch them monologuing, like they don't know when to shut up, and that's uh, what gets them into trouble. All right. I think that's a very good... What, what, what about you? How, how would you punch up this murder? Yes. What would you do if you were red-white? So... If I was Red White, the murderer in this case, uh, I simply would not have stayed in the same room with my primary witness. Mm-hmm. I, I would have just simply not implicated myself by uh, staying in the same hotel room as the person I prepared to be my primary witness in court. I would have just flown entirely off the radar from the first place. Did they ever explain why he stayed in the same hotel room with her? No, not really, actually. (laughs) As far as I know, there's no reason for him to have been staying with April May. Other than the fact that I guess he's her boss and I guess, you know, they did the wiretapping together. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think between the two of us, uh, either of us would have been a better sociopathic killer than Red White of Blue Corp. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that says about us. I'm not sure either. All right. So finally, one one last thing that I think that I would like to do as we sort of continue through this series is um, keep a sort of running power ranking of how we feel about each case. So right now we've played case one, one, the first turnabout and case Mm -hmm. one, two turnabout sisters. So pretty simple power ranking so far. Where do you put Turnabout Sisters in relation to the first Turnabout? I mean, you know, if, if it's just, you know, we're doing like a ranking order thing, Turnabout Sisters is uh, the stronger case. Uh, yeah, yeah, easily, know, the, for the sure. One, <laughs> like the, the first one, it's, you know, a great introduction, establishing kind of the courtroom mechanics, uh, introducing some of these characters, but um, it is a very short case, and Turnabout Sisters just has um, an excellent story. Yeah. Yeah, to me, this is a very easy power ranking so far. Uh, number one, Turnabout Sisters. Number two, the first Turnabout. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll keep track of this as we keep going. Yeah. I'll have to get like a, a board with like an actual like physical like index cards or something. Like <laughs> these up and down and rank them. Ooh, I love that. I love the physicality of it. Very, very uh, lawyerly of you. Yes, definitely. Exhibit A. So Mish, yes. that concludes Turnabout Sisters. We did it. Where can people find you? 
you can find me streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv slash mishcosplay. Uh, also Instagram, mishcosplay. What about you, Abby? Where can people find you? People can find me at Abersary on all of the places. That's A-B-E-R-R-S-A-R-Y. I am on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places. Um, so, yeah, check it out there. Anyway, this has been Turnabout Podcast. And remember... We should get... We should make Turnabout Podcast posters so you can hang them in your office. The first podcast to make you cry. (laughs) Catch it on our merch store. Yeah. You ever think about how red white has a pink suit, which is the color of red and white, and then he has purple hair, which is the color of red and blue, and then he has light blue buttons, which is the color of blue and white. I didn't think about that.